Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. One of my favourite things uh, that I read while I was doing research for this book was a story written by a woman many years ago who'd gone to stay and study with a tribe, um, and I can't remember which tribe it was, but they were nomads. So every so often, in order to go to a new food source, they would all all pack up and move. Uh, now, in this tribe, there was a mother and her daughter who were extremely ill, and they just couldn't travel. And this would have meant certain death for them. If they couldn't keep up with their tribe, they would have died. But the grandmother, so the mother's mother, carried her daughter on her back, carried the child in her arms with the tribe on her own to catch up with them. And she ensured the survival very directly of her, not only her daughter, but her granddaughter, granddaughter or grandson in that case, which is incredible. I mean, what a feat of physical strength. And it just goes to show what amazing women, older women are, how important they are to all our lives. And for me, writing that chapter at the end of my book made me not only so proud of the women in my own life, but also proud to be growing older. I don't fear growing older because for me, I can see going back through history just how important um, older women are, that we're not, you know, as it has been painted in the past, kind of old crones or witches or useless to society. We are linchpins of society and I found it really empowering. In the game of science, sounding sexist is not a good reason to ban a theory. The straight-up words of American evolutionary psychologist Jeffrey F. Miller, Professor of Psychology at the University of New Mexico. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Has science historically been sexist towards women? And how easy is it to mistake the dominant view of science for objectivity? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with science journalist, broadcaster and author Angela Saini, whose new book, Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong and the new research rewriting the story has just been published by Fourth Estate where Angela argues science is far from perfect. Angela goes on to state, pretty much every scientist I interviewed for this book who is working to challenge negative research about women told me that he or she is a feminist. This doesn't make them any less brilliant at their work, in some cases just the opposite. So does science always get it right? Does biology determine everything? And are women more resilient than men? My name's Angela Saini. I'm a science journalist and broadcaster based in London. And uh, my latest book is just out. It's called Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story. I uh, explore lots of different issues, including biology, but um, in my day job, I cover uh, even broader than that, everything to do with science. What an interesting uh, book to read and what a controversial title and we might pick at that a little later in the interview. Really well done to Angela. Listen, I might start off with a big wide open question for you if that's okay. Do you think science is all about a journey to the truth? Yeah, well, I think a lot of people out there in the world think of science as kind of a set of facts. So every time a new scientific paper gets published that this is a new, you know, unvarnished truth uh, out there in the world and Actually, science is 
far more complicated than that. So things do go wrong, and we know historically things have often gone wrong. And every paper is not so much a fact as kind of a little piece of a puzzle towards the truth. It could be correct, it could not, but it's only future research that's going to tell us. I'm just wondering, how unbalanced is the research with regard to women? I know you write somewhere, we believe what science offers is a story free from prejudice. And what jumps off the page in this book, In Fear, is clearly that women have been underestimated. Yeah, they have. And we know that historically, we know that socially, you know, women have been treated differently to men for thousands of years. And uh, we live in a patriarchy, so we know we understand that this has historically been a male-dominated society that we live in. But um, science's piece in that puzzle is actually uh, really fascinating because we think of science as kind of propelling us forward, giving us the facts, when actually for the last two, three hundred years, they've done exactly the opposite. So even Charles Darwin, for instance, believed that women were intellectually inferior to men. He thought that we were a less evolved form of the human species based not really on scientific evidence, obviously, but on his own personal observations of the world around him. So he looked at other Victorian women and he thought, well, they're very meek and subservient. I don't see any women politicians. I don't see any women artists. I don't see this. You know, completely ignoring the fact that women around him weren't able to do the same things as men because they didn't have these same opportunities. You know, even at primary level, they weren't educated the same, let alone have access to universities. They didn't have the vote. Married women weren't allowed to own property. The scientific academies didn't admit women. So I think it's been very easy in the past uh, for people to look, and scientists included, for the scientists to look at the world and imagine that what they see reflects biology, when in fact what they're seeing is society mutated by um, culture and social effects. So what you're saying there really is that science is guilty of reinforcing sexist gender types. Is that right? And and stereotypes around gender. Yeah, absolutely. I think for for a long time it did that. Um, And it's only really um, in the last 40, 50 years as women have been allowed to enter universities and get degrees that you see women kind of rising up the ranks in science that a new portrait is really being drawn. And it is radically different from the one that went before. So. So very often people have tried to replicate experiments that were done in the past that seemed to suggest that women were somehow intellectually inferior or different to men and found that those experiments were wrong. Theories have been revisited to show that actually a lot of these kind of sexist assumptions that were in biology were actually incorrect. And throughout the book, I look at a lot of them, for example, on intelligence, brain size. So In the early 20th century, late 19th century, there were a lot of neurologists, very prominent brain scientists who said that women had to be less intelligent than men because on average, our brains are smaller. Now, of course, brain size is relative to body size and women are slightly smaller than men. Um, So even though it was obvious that brain size alone can't be an indicator of intelligence, it's relative, that was still taken as a fact because it kind of reinforced an existing stereotype. And now we know, of course, that um, IQ is the same for men and women.
You very entertainingly mention the former president of Harvard University, Lawrence Summers, who fatally mentioned the idea of intrinsic aptitude at a, at a Harvard event. This is where that women are seen as, you know, I suppose natural caregivers, caring, gentle and have a lot of empathy. Men seen as more rational, logical, more focused. And it got me laughing, first of all, and also thinking. And, you know, when I look at kind of the types of men that I've loved and a lot of my male friends they're not exactly the most logical or the most <laughs> rational and a lot of them are actually very caring and a lot of them are very um, uh, soothing types who are naturally um, intuitive on people's emotions so have we just lost the run of ourselves with all of that? I think we have I mean for example my husband is a very sensitive man and he's he's very good at expressing himself for instance so in that sense he bucks two stereotypes he's sensitive and he's also good at, you know, vocalizing his feelings. But I think the danger in what gender stereotypes do is um, they make us feel that either we conform to them or we don't conform to them. And if we don't conform to them, that somehow we're exceptions. Actually, what the science shows is that these gender stereotypes themselves are flawed. You know, the idea that um, men are less emotional than women, that they're less good parents than women, um, that uh, they are more rational and reasonable. Actually, none of the science backs that up at all. We are all capable of being emotional. We are all capable of being unemotional. I mean, there are lots of women who are very unemotional. Um, so I think when, when we actually look at the facts, when we, when we have large amounts of data from lots of people, um, we actually these differences that we think of as very profound actually start to melt away and disappear. And what becomes clear is that we as individuals all show a huge amount of variety. So it's not, you know, if you take a room of people, you split them down the middle, you will find differences between those two groups just for the basic statistical fact that we are all different. And then when we look at how the media uh, relay certain types of scientific information, there's a huge amount of conjecture rather than, I suppose, solid objective truths. And I suppose it's what sells papers or as clicks on websites. Yeah, I mean, the fact is, whenever we read a piece of information that confirms something that we already suspect, we're more likely to remember it. We're more likely to keep that with us and relay it to other people. So if, for example, a newspaper report comes out and it it says that scientists say that women are worse at parking than men, we all think, yeah, that's what we always thought, women are worse at parking than men. Um, when actually the whole picture is far more complicated. Um, and a lot of the research that shows that there are actually very few differences between men, that there are actually lots of similarities between men and women, um, don't get published and they don't make the news because they're not as sexy as um, the stories that show that there are differences, when in fact the body of research that shows that we are more similar is actually far, far greater. We just don't see it. You talk also a bit about neurofeminism and also um, neurosexism. And I'm just wondering, how do you understand that? Because that sounds to a lot of people like a massive headache. Well, what we have to understand is that scientists don't like bringing politics into the lab. And that's understandable because, you know, when you're doing anything scientific, you want it to be pure and you want it to be untainted and not affected by bias or agenda. But actually what scientists who happen to be feminists have actually brought to science is correction. So a lot of the very damaging and incorrect, false research that was done on women throughout the 19th century and 20th century, like the kind I already mentioned, it was actually women inspired by feminism, some of them. 
who um, went out there to try and understand the issue better, to try and understand themselves better. So actually, feminism has helped correct some of the mistakes that have happened in science. It's been really useful. And this was difficult for me to get my head around because obviously as a science journalist, we're always wary of politics entering science. But actually, in this case, I think it's been vitally important because there was a problem here. Science has a, had a problem with women and still does in some quarters. And actually, women coming into the sciences and men and trying to correct it because they feel that that, that, that problem exists has actually been a good thing. I was very surprised to read that um, I think less than 10%, maybe somewhere between 7 and 8% of uh, the um, recipients of the Nobel Prize have been women. I think you say 48 out of 911. And you say a third of global researchers are women. I find that very surprising. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. But we have to understand the reasons that those numbers are the way they are. The Nobel Prize has been awarded for you know many, many decades. Women have only had access to university education for a small portion of that. I mean, my own alma mater, Oxford, they only granted full degrees to women in 1920, and Harvard Medical School and Cambridge were even much later than that. So just think about the journey that women still have to go to catch up, how far they have to go. And then when you factor in the fact that research careers are very time-intensive, you're expected to work very long hours, which isn't always compatible with having a family, so women also lose out in that sense, if you can't put in the number of hours you need to to win a Nobel Prize, then you've already lost out. You know, you have no hope of getting there. Um, so there are still lots of barriers that women face within science to getting to where they want to go. And that's not even including sexism and harassment, which we now know are huge problems in parts of academia. You were talking a bit about uh, politics earlier, and I was just wondering, do you think science always gets it right? And do you think, you know, coming at everything from objective truths and looking at independent objective research, do you think it starts and ends with that? Or is it much more layered? See, I think personally that objectivity isn't possible when you're thinking about human beings. We all have biases. We all have stereotypes. I do. You know, I have biases in my head about men and women and, and everything. And um, the only way to do fair research is to be open and honest about those biases and also humble. I think what science lacks in some parts is humility. So whereas in the social sciences, for example, in philosophy, they say that there's no such thing as objective truth, science says exactly the opposite. But when it comes to studying human biology and behavior, um, we are so complicated, we're so complex. But the fact that we also have our own personal biases really complicates the situation because when we have a very small amount of data, we tend to read a lot more into it than is actually there because of our biases. Um, and that needs to be fixed. The picture of who we are will only really be painted when we understand not just the biology, but also the social factors, historical factors, cultural factors, all these different things go into making a human being. And then on top of that, we are all so different as individuals. So to kind of group together and generalize about men and women, science is not actually in a position to be able to do that, but so are none of us. Angela, do you think it could be argued that um, feminism could be a friend to science? Yeah, I think it can, because we've already seen that feminists within the scientific community have helped correct some historic mistakes that science has made. They're trying to redress the kind of sexism and imbalance that we see in the sciences. But I think from the other side as well, the new portrait that's emerging of women 
from science, from better research that's being done, is really empowering. You know, it tells us that actually men and women aren't that different in the way we think, that cognitively we're not that different, that in our evolutionary past we we actually did very similar things. So we lived quite egalitarian lives, uh, you know, many, many thousands of years ago before patriarchy, that there are plenty of examples in the animal kingdom and within the human species of difference and variation when it comes to women. So, for example, the fact that women hunt. For a long time, people thought that hunting was a purely male activity. Women hunt in many hunter-gatherer tribes. That we know that childcare, for instance, isn't something that just women do, but is actually done cooperatively. So this idea of cooperative breeding, where not only mums and dads, but also grandparents and siblings and aunts and uncles are involved in raising children. There's actually... If there's one thing that I've learned about the human species and about men and women from writing this book, it's that anything is possible. We actually don't have to live by any set of rules. For example, chimpanzees are male-dominated. They naturally form male hierarchies. We don't do that. There are, there are many communities in the world in which men don't rule. So it just goes to show that we can live any way we choose. Our biology allows us to live any way we choose. So if we want an equal and fairer world, it's perfectly within our grasp to create it. Yeah, you have some great uh, stuff on women tribes, women in uh, the Philippines, I think. I think they're called the Acta tribes women. And, you know, their hunting ability is is off the charts and their resilience and their ability to put themselves through huge pressures to do what they do. I find it incredible because, you know, I've studied these different tribes around the world, different ways of living I'm reading a book at the moment called The Kingdom of Women by Chu Wei Hong. She's a um, Singaporean writer. She's actually a lawyer, so she's not a writer at all. She went to live with um, a tribe in China called the Moswo. And this is a very small community in which women rule. You know, it's matrilineal, so wealth, property, everything is passed down the female line. Women can have as many sexual partners as they want. There's no such thing as marriage. And, you know, it's possible for that sort of society to exist. And what these kind of examples show us around the world is that any way of life is possible. Yeah, I find it um, uh, very interesting reading about the Himba mothers in southern Africa. And they live uh, very sexually fluid lives. Um, They have multiple partners. They call the shots sexually. And they really take life by the hand, really. Yeah, so the Himba are special because, uh, like you said, they're a tribe in which their infidelity is not frowned upon. So women may have husbands, but they will also have other partners and they can choose who they want to have relationships with um, and it's not frowned upon and men do the same. And it just goes to show that the the societies that we live in, we think of them as so kind of progressive and equal in gender, but actually we do still have double standards for men and women. It's acceptable for, you know, men to go out and spread their seeds. We don't judge them for that, but we do judge women and many societies do that. And this is a social thing. But in turn, that has shaped how we think about men and women. We think of women as naturally monogamous, when in fact, the evidence shows that we're not. Given the opportunity, without fear of judgment, without fear of violence, women behave sexually very similar to men. Yeah, it just shows you how um, how the world could be also different uh, depending on what happened. And I suppose you throw in a bit of religious belief into the mix and then things will change. Like if you travel to Mozambique, the north and the south are so different when it comes to women's roles and who calls the shots, yet it's in one country. So it's amazing to think like that, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. I think the key to understanding uh, men and women is not to just look at one narrow piece of research or, you know, one study. It's to really look at the world in total. Um, and like I said before, look at biology, but also look at the diversity that you see around the world. Female sexual behavior is actually fascinating because it varies so much. But the, one of the reasons it varies so much is because women don't have the same freedom depending on where they live. So that in the countries where they're given more freedom, their behavior is very different from the countries where obviously they have far less. In Saudi Arabia, for example, a woman sexually transgressing, to have an affair is a hugely punishable offense. So obviously she is going to behave differently from a woman in a country where she has complete freedom. Um, so we can't kind of draw too many scientific conclusions about women from how they behave because they behave so differently depending on the societies they're in. I loved reading about uh, the monkeys in India and cooperative breeding and it really um, opened the world up to me um, uh, as always reading it. And there were some very kind of contradictory what or what you would think is contradictory motives within these monkeys. And you write very movingly how the mothers carry their dead babies for miles and miles and are, you know, and how they hold on to them and are very almost reluctant to let them go. And it's also human in one way. But how they um, get on and interact with their uh, male counterparts is very interesting. Yeah, this is interesting because in actually in all other primate species or most other primate species, the mother is always very attached to her offspring. And that's a really good reason because, for example, amongst lungers, you might see uh, males attack an infant, sometimes kill them, infanticide, in order to be able to mate with the mother because... In that species, and in many primate species, a mother can only have one child at a time, one infant at a time. Um, she literally cannot cope with any more babies than that. So a male strategically knows that if he kills her baby, then she will have to mate again, and that gives him an opportunity to mate. But the females don't put up with this kind of lying down or passively. They really put up a big fight when this happens. So it just goes to show the kind of interesting dynamics that occur in other primate species, but also that females can be powerful, that they can be strong and they can put up a fight when faced with male violence. And very strategic thinkers nonetheless. It really, that really came off your research. Yeah, and another, you know, another way they behave strategically is that often they will, have, they will mate with multiple males in order to confuse them about paternity, because obviously a male does not want to kill his own offspring. But if a female has mated with many males, then they don't know whether the baby is theirs or not, so they're less likely to kill that child.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with science journalist, broadcaster and author Angela Saini, whose new book, Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong and the new researcher writing the story has just been published by Fourth Estate, where Angela argues... Writing our evolutionary story isn't easy, and it's also plagued by controversy. As Charles Darwin's work in the 19th century shows, the narratives have been shaped by the attitudes of the time. Even he, the father of evolutionary biology, was so affected by a culture of sexism that he believed women to be the inferior sex. It's taken more than a century for researchers to overturn these ideas and rewrite this flawed tale. I asked Angela about the research work of British clinical psychologist Simon Baron-Cohn, an expert in autism from the University of Cambridge, and what his views have offered the debate on gender difference, as some of his views have run up against things quite considerably. They do, yeah. So Simon Baron-Cohen is a very highly respected autism researcher at Cambridge University, and his work on autism really is uh, kind of groundbreaking. He's been very influential in his field. But at the same time, he's also written uh, a number of papers and a number of books about this idea of an essential difference between men and women, so the existence of male and female brains, uh, which has been criticized not just by me, but by many psychologists and writers before me, um, because the evidence just doesn't stack up to support that idea. And yet it sounds scientific um, when he's writing about it, even though it's just a theory. It's amazing to see how Ruben Gurr, the American psychologist's research, has really taken an off and I suppose captured the uh, public imagination and, and obviously the media along with it. He wrote that males will have an easier time of seeing and doing. Now, I laughed my head off because who, I don't know who could agree with that. It's just, it's just such a strange thing to say and, and it speaks to the fact that it's very easy for researchers to take a tiny bit of data. So in this case, uh, Ruben Gurr was looking at um, an experiment that he had done, he and his colleagues, looking into brain differences between men and women. Now, of course, the brain is massively complicated. In a tiny, tiny you know, square centimetre, you will have billions and billions of neurons. Um, so even the most sophisticated brain scanning technologies can only get you so far. They can't, you know, they really can't paint a very, very accurate picture of the brain. They can only give you some sense of the activity. And anyway, this piece of research claimed to see uh, differences between men and women's brains. And from that, he inferred that men find it easier to to see and act, uh, whereas women are somehow more intuitive. And he says it in a kind of roundabout way because he himself knows that the research is, is limited, what it can really tell us, even if it's reliable in the first place. But it's dangerous because when you say things like that, it makes people think that, oh, men are natural hunters and they're natural builders and creators and inventors and women are 